0: Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it.
1: 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense
0: of it all. We survived theater school and you will too. Are we famous yet?
1: So, wait, 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 hang on. Before you, I just want to say um, about dinosaurs, I have to give a shout out to somebody that I know. I, I, um, I know a man named Larry Greeley, who's, I'm not sure how old he is, but he's older than me by a lot. And um, he just decided one day that he was never going to stop keeping pace with technology because he did not want to be behind the times. And so he's one of these elderly people who you don't have to worry like but do you have email oh. <laughs> whatever like he he stays on top of it and also he stays on top of how the culture is changing and he he adapts and that's like i'm not saying that's easy to do but it's so necessary and you i'm grateful go, for people who, d- who who don't
0: become dinosaurs but anyway go ahead well no that's exactly it you you choose uh, and you and i talk about this all the time is it raining there no. I, oh, I hear like that. What are you I hear no, tapping. Funny. Okay. Um, oh, really? Hmm. But it actually sounds really nice. Anyway. Oh,
1: my fan. Oh yeah, yeah I kind of like it. Fans.
0: Actually, actually let me turn it off. Okay. It okay. When I'm editing. <laughs> it sounds like the rain, but it's not and you'll know. So, okay. okay. And that'll annoy the shit out of you. Um yes. Okay, so <laughs> you said it and you know, to podcast listeners sometimes before the the talking, we have a talk and so I, we can say all the things and the names. But let uh, suffice it to say we were just talking about how yes. we do the work. It is hard work. It's hard when people call you on your shit and when you and when or when I have to realize, oh, I am using terms that are offensive and I am um, disconnecting from the people that I am, are in my life. That is not okay with me um how do i adapt it's very fucking hard i've spent a lot of money and time in therapy doing it for my own personal growth work about my family i've spent a lot of time with my husband doing it it's not easy but here's the thing like i think it's the only way to live and to not feel obsolete and not feel left behind so i like to say too like you know i know it's adapt or die but for me it's like collaborate or fucking die
1: I- amen speak on it because, just collaborate and, and I I'm always so surprised that like in this field which I just feel is so obviously meant to be collaborative like I just don't know what's the big surprise here why why you know I was saying to my husband like why as the student or as the school go through all of the effort that it takes to go through this to ostensibly be able to, Snap in to an ensemble to a group and then lead people to believe that they're alone in having graduated and not having success immediately or deciding you know you want to further refine what your idea is of being an artist. I mean, there's absolutely it's it's I'll go so far as to say it's unconscionable that the schools wouldn't set you up for that in such a way that you felt like you were. Because also, P.S., it's great PR for you as a school when everybody can say, oh, not only is it a great program, prestigious, whatever, but going there gives you entree into a community that's, like, robust and happening and, yeah, and I mean, alive.
0: I think that what we have here is, a re- and we talk about this on the podcast, a reckoning, a forced reckoning. Where you've got people saying, hey, if you don't change, you're out. But then the other part of that is, how do we, or people in power positions or positions where they do sort of can implement change? How do you help people change? That is the, and you and I are former therapists, so we know the challenges of helping people change. And we're fucking equipped and it's hard. So, it is so hard because what they feel like is that they're going to die if they have to change. And a part of them will die. But, and it's really scary and nobody likes it. And um, I, you know, I will tell, and I've told this story before about my mom, you know, sitting with her. She could not access sadness. She could access anger. Accessing sadness to her apparently was like admitting horrible things, right? And that horrible things probably had been done to her and that she had done horrible things. So we're sitting at this restaurant, Crossroads on Chicago Avenue after my dad died. And I just said to her, you look so sad. And no judgment. I I mean, I was sad. I was crying all the time. I said, you look so sad. I'm so sorry. And she slammed her glass down in front of everybody at the restaurant and like almost broke. Thank God it didn't break. She would have hurt herself. And she said, I screamed almost. I think it was like almost a scream. I am not sad. I'm angry. And then walked out of the restaurant. And I thought, holy shit. This woman, educated, with it, hip, funny, in therapy, all the things, votes right, to pub- you know, like uh, d- d- Democrat, like fucking A, cannot admit that she's sad how do we expect white old men to admit that they are that they need to change
1: that that it, that, that time is over now and we're on a new time um, i so appreciated what dave desmalshon said in the video that you sent me that was the video that you procured to send to your students so that they had some words of it was almost like a commencement yeah. you know speech but anyway what he said in it at the end was if you have any He was talking specifically about substance abuse, which is obviously a huge, important uh, thing. But I'll just expand it to say, eh, if you have demons, right, start working on it now. Don't wait. Don't think you're going to be a better actor because you're tortured. And I promise you, if you start working on yourself now, not only will you be a better actor, but you'll be a person that people are excited to work with because nobody actually really likes an asshole, even if that makes them a really good actor. And, and, and it's kind of like the same approach. If you keep a place clean, you don't have to kill yourself to get it clean <laughs> once a year. If you keep working on yourself, you don't have to overhaul your entire life and personality. You know what, just when you get called to the carpet, like it can just be a maintenance, like a daily maintenance thing. It doesn't need to be this
0: it's so – well, yeah. and I mean, you can take that and blow it out. Like, look at our country. Look at our – I mean, like, we're – oh, you don't have to wait for a civil war inside yourself. Like, you really don't. But if that's what it takes, I guess that's what it takes. A part of me, too, is like, you know, for for – I hope it doesn't take that, but it might because it, there's only also so many chances we're given to get it together. And then people – the universe, whoever you believe in, some shit goes down, and you're like, "Oh, chickens roost, chickens." It just, just, it just all comes down to that. I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" That you don't, and also, like, I think what people say, like, it's a small world. What they mean is both. It, it's true. It that, um, and, and 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 Tate and I were saying yesterday that like before you do some shady shit, okay, before we do some shady shit, check to see who's on whose friends list. That's the other thing. Like do a little research because every guarantee people know each other. And I don't even mean like they know each other and, and, and good news travels really fast as does bad news. Right. So just know that like, you know, I, I don't know.
1: And be careful who you blind copy.
0: Hey, let me run this by you. Okay, teal swan. Let's talk about teal motherfucking swine, so as you called her. I teal swine, yeah, teal swine. I couldn't remember, so I said to okay. <laughs> um, this is someone who is an actor okay so i what's your hat when did you first know about her because i first learned about her on friday i first learned about her like maybe three weeks ago i saw okay i saw the 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 um the uh, trailer for her for the documentary which you gave me the password for thank you um i saw the trailer and i was like Oh no, another one? What the fuck, man? And then I was like, okay, well, let me go see this shit for free somewhere. And I went on Amazon Prime. And on Amazon, then that took me down. The fucking rabbit hole of the real, like, like um, promo videos for her. So she has a series of movies about her that are made by, by followers and fans that are like self-help videos. And I was like, because let me watch these shits for free on Prime okay, i mean do you know if we wanted to I think we're too we're too it's too late now, but we we could have done an experiment where we did that where we became that one of us decided to become a guru and and curate that, and that is what I'm fascinated by, but she's she's um she reminds me a little bit of my fantasy of what. I think of when I think of your sister in terms of someone who is so beautiful to look at. I mean, she's beautiful,
1: and no, like complete garbage on the inside,
0: and also knows exactly what she's doing. Exactly what she's doing,
1: and that—that's the thing that. So listen, you never can go wrong trying to make money off of people suffering. That is just the easiest thing in the world to do. Tell a group of people these things that they can interpret to be personal to them, but are really just, you know, general to humanity. You don't think you're good enough. You wonder if people really love you. I mean, it's just like, there's nobody, almost, except for these people who become these gurus, these megalomaniacs, there's nobody who couldn't be convinced that, yeah, I do, whatever, feel badly about myself. Yeah. I've been treated badly. Of course. Um, by the way, did you know her real name is uh, her Teal Bosworth <laughs> okay so I was in it at the beginning when she was talking uh, because I didn't um, I didn't know you didn't? necessarily that she, it was a cult oh my I, I god that's great I just saw the thing and I, it looked interesting so I clicked on it or no actually I had heard somebody mention it on a podcast and say I'm not going to say anything else about it just look up this documentary so in one of the first, in the first episode, she says, listen, women don't have examples of other women following their passion. So whenever somebody's doing it, it feels like they're charting the path for themselves. And I just was like, yes, that is so true. We have lots of examples of women who have to compromise and make sacrifices but we don't have a ton of examples of somebody saying like hey this is what i'm about and i'm gonna go for it and and i'm like the dream big kind of dreams i was with it for that but where did you go well Well, she calls her followers lost toys which says to me a you know they're lost because lost is the people who you can lead into a cult and toys meaning they're your toys they're They're objects that you toy with and get to believe absolutely anything you want to get them to believe and because she's so good at it she has all of this charm see i could never be a cult leader you just you could you have to have charisma you have to have this thing that people you know are drawn to you about you use your charisma for good but if you were born differently or you had a slightly I don't know I don't know the factors that would have
0: made. I feel like I'd have to be skinny let's, let's start there but go ahead <laughs> yeah,
1: right right sure. if I was born right. skinny
0: like that would right. be good okay go ahead
1: another great question is like would she be where she is if she weren't beautiful right probably and not. white or whatever yeah but um as you know and we'll say to our listeners we're we're writing um a, a television series about um a female con artist cult leader and I had to kind of laugh like well, right, and we don't have very few. We don't have very good examples of women cult leaders. We, you just don't hear a lot about women leading cults. You hear a lot about the woman behind the man leading the cult, like in Wild Wild Country. Um, who
0: takes the fall for the guy, really?
1: Right, and and actually, I was wondering, like, not to say that people don't question the Eckert Tolleys and the um, Tom Rock, Tim Robbins, not Tim Robbins, not Tony, Robbins. Robbins. Tony, Tony Robbins, Tony Robbins. Yeah, I don't feel that those people necessarily get dragged through the mud in the way that later I found out on Reddit how people are dragging this woman. Not to say she doesn't need to be dragged through the mud because she does. Um, I just ultimately thought it was so dangerous. I felt so frightened for the vulnerable people in the room. I felt frightened when they were co-therapizing each other. I felt frightened when... You know, somebody says, oh, when I was acting the role of your father, I felt I was abusing you. Like, it's just so dangerous. And and then it got this combination of like comically funny and just tragically weird when her assistant says, let me just get into the bathtub with my dress on because I feel most comfortable in water and proceeds to tell a story about how her the adults at a party at her parents' house put all the kids on top of the barbecue. I'm just going like, wait, that doesn't even. What? Well, it's not even.
0: It's not even. Um, it's like psychotic. It's like not one
1: of the. It's psychotic. Correct. And actually, that the look in her, I thought, okay, she's psychotic. So now this woman is in charge of controlling a bunch of psychotic people. And I believe she's, and then I read also later in Reddit that she, her, she had a therapist in the 2000s that was part of the satanic panic thing of when, you know, or like late nineties when this whole thing about child memories. Yeah. Yeah. And people, therapists were implanting memories that people, you know, because people are suggestible. And so That was her therapist, so that that made a lot more more sense. But um, there was such a poetic moment. This man that she's hoodwinked to do everything for her, who's in love with her, but who she doesn't return the love to. This man is looking at his goldfish in a goldfish tank, and he says, I love them, but they're in a tiny little world that never changes, which is exactly what he is in a tiny little world that never changes. And then um, when she compared herself to the Dalai Lama, I just thought, okay, well, we're all done here because um, the, the thing is, the minute somebody thinks of themselves in that way, you know, that's... I could get with the... For, you know, if it's like, oh, you're, these messages are sort of empowering. Like, I can kind of go there. But then there's always that thing that they do,
0: right? So so my... my uh... And I find this more and more now that we're getting into like crazy land in 2022 of who believes what. Okay, so I, yes, there is always, you, you've you got me, you've got me, you've got me. Like I can get into the beauty. I'm like seduced by beauty just like everybody else. I'm seduced by come as you are um, lingo. I'm seduced by all of it. I You got me. If you tell me I can come as I am. That I'm, that you're, and you're beautiful and that we're, there's going to be a promise of community, I'm in, right? So, so I was working here on a Saturday and I was talking, there's a guy in my office space that's running for Congress, okay? Okay, great. I'm talking to him, fucking dope guy talking about climate crisis, loved it, loved it. I'm like, I'm all in. Then he says, and do you know, like, um, we're all under mind control, And that the thing in Texas that happened, that guy who killed everybody was under CIA mind control, and he was actually the biological father of the kids he killed. This is, and I, so there's a left turn that go, and I, I hate that, because what actually are you doing? You've just hoodwinked me, and now you're talking about something totally psychotic, like totally um, what is it? It's um, Conspiracy Theory, but times a thousand. So we're at this place now where there's a mix... And he's a part, member of the Green Party. So there's a mix of self-help meets Bernie bros, meets anti-vaxers, Trumpites, meets anti-vaxxers. And this guy's also, like, anti-gun loss. He's a Green Party anti-gun okay, So no. what we're getting now is... He sounds really good. I'm talking about the beginning about the climate. Like, I'm all in. I'm like, dude, I'm trying to do my part. I'm, like, doing these things. He's like, you're amazing. You're a tree hugger. I love it. We're going to change the world. And then he says that about that 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 the guy is the biological father of the kill, children he killed.
1: I know we can't pass universal background checks for gun ownership, but could we do it for people who are running for uh, public office? Could we have a psychological test or a background test you know like there should be a bar right now the bar for running for office is that you have to be able to have or raise money so that you can run for office that's pretty much oh you have to in not in all cases but in many cases you have to be a united states
0: born citizen and i don't think you can have a felony maybe i don't know right
1: but like what about if you're truly psychotic because here's here's the overlap with teal swan like you got to be charismatic to be a politician and you know speaking of politicians i recently discovered that this guy i had slept with when i lived in california was the mayor of charlottesville when um that whole shit went down in charlottesville i what yes i just randomly was like remembering this time that i he was a nice guy. He didn't do anything wrong. Let me preface it by saying that. But it it I thought about this memory differently twenty years later, which is that um, we were at my apartment, we'd had sex, gone to sleep, and when I woke up, he said, "I really was debating about whether or not I should have sex with you while you were asleep." And I was like, "Oh my God." <laughs> and I said, well, I'm so glad you didn't, because just FYI, I would not have liked to wake up to you fucking me. Thanks. Uh, I was, I had that memory. I was like, oh, I wonder whatever happened to that guy. I go Google him. He was the mayor of. <laughs> he's some. I think he has aspirations of being a a Barack Obama type. He,
0: oh, I was like a. Well, killer, he's like got a that's PhD.
1: I, I met him when he Was getting oh, yeah. his PhD at Berkeley. He's like incredibly smart guy. but (laughs) but let me tell you something. (laughs) Right. What is even happening? But there's a pathology,
2: you know, that you've
1: got to have to get you really fired up to, like, want to meet everybody in America and get them to vote for you. That's just a skill that not all of us have. And and what really gets in the way of having that skill is when you have a lot of empathy for other people, right? Then that's just so exhausting. You can't mobilize.
0: No, that's what I'm saying. Like, listen. I would do it, but, like, I can't even go to a fucking meet-and-greet without feeling afterwards, like, I have to sleep for, like, four days, and, like, I can't get it together the next day. So, like, who are these machines that can – what is happening? So I I hear you, and I just think – I mean, I don't know. We need – I mean, it always comes down to it, but, like, I think we – I mean, people think that you know Miles hates it when I say this, but I have to be honest. Like, I think we're headed for some kind of civil war in this country. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry to you,
1: Miles, but we absolutely are. We I mean, can't go on like this. It, actually, we're we're, we're truly yeah. really in it. Um, yeah,
0: and yeah, you know, hopefully the North will prevail. <laughs> if that's, if those are... Well, the thing is, Miles was because Miles came home and he was. My husband was like, do you, "Do you know that like a lot of people, these extremists are still fighting the civil war?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Yeah." And also, we're headed for, like, a major conflict on our own soil, a violent one that started in, like, January 6th. You know, trials are about to start. None of them are going to jail. Nobody. Who, who that's like, I'm like, don't even make me read this headline. Why? Don't bother. Yeah. yeah it's not going to happen. So, um, we I think that's, in it, to bring it back to, like, institutions and things, like, we cannot expect things to stay the same. If you have people that are wildly unhappy, angry, needy, not being heard on both sides, I don't care what side you're on, you you, you can't, something's got to give. And like chickens and roost. And so it's like, how do we want to look at change and how do we want to, but you know, regardless of that, if a majority of people are pissed off and want don't want the thing. There's going to be a fucking reaction to it, and sometimes it's very violent. And so, I don't like it, but I am also not. Look, capitalism is not working for us. It's, it's not working for. I looked at Hollywood last night, right? And I where where the thing was, and the amount of houseless people, and the amount of people not getting their needs met. And I thought, this is we cannot. I am not uh, dumb enough or whatever enough to know that this is not leading somewhere. This is leading somewhere.
1: Right, 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 right. Because right. this so, is the part in the movie where everybody goes, oh, maybe it was that and that and that and that that led to us being here. Like, people seem to not realize it until they're at, until the
0: gunman is in the building, right? Right. right. And, and and I, and, and it's, it's sort of like... Um, yeah, like, and you and I know this. It's like, like what Dave Dismalson said: work on your shit as you go along. And one time, and I, I you know, and because I used to think that denial was awesome, right? Like one of those people that could be in denial, I loved them. I wanted to be them until my friend Edna, bless her heart, said, "No, no, no, denial is you wake up on your couch ten years later and you're suicidal or homicidal and you don't know how you got there." And that's legit. It. And I thought, oh, oh, no, no. Oh, no, no. And that's where we're headed. That's where right? we're headed. And it, we're at? That's where we are. In general, like, I feel
1: almost every problem we face is exemplified by this gun thing. Like, oh, I, literally every single person in America will have to have known somebody who died in a mass shooting. OK, I guess that's what it is. I guess that's what it is for the people who are not convinced. They have to personally know somebody who died in a mass shooting. Today on the podcast, we are talking to W. Earl Brown. W. Earl Brown is an actor. He's been in everything. Um, He's got credits as an actor, a writer, a producer. You know him from, so there's something about Mary. You know him from Deadwood. You know him from, he's currently on Hacks, a fantastic television show. Anyway, he's warm and delightful and is a great storyteller, so please enjoy our conversation with W. Earl Brown. Yes, congratulations, Earl Brown, you survived theater school. I did. And you survived our very theater school, but before, I think just right slightly before
2: us. I was, uh, I finished, I was there 86 to 89 MFA.
1: Oh yeah, MFA. Okay, so you had already gone, but was your undergrad? Theater? It,
2: well, sort of by default. I started taking so many classes that I could stay an extra semester and get a theater degree. So I did. I double majored. Oh, yeah, you're smart. That so was just a way to stay in college for a full fifth year.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. A lot of people did that, you know, by accident at our at school. I met a, I met a guy in my DePaul gen Eds who had been there seven years. And I was like, the seven-year plan. I was like, oh. But now I get it. Like, look, that was a great way to postpone adulthood. Anyway, Earl, thank you for joining us. You you are, I would say, what I said was, and I asked Earl if I could say this, but like the consummate character actor, works in everything, has forever, not that you're old, but I'm saying you're prolific as an actor, and um, memorable in every single thing. I, I I'm serious. I don't say that often. I me- remember you from things that,
1: you've never. I've never heard you say that. Yeah, actually yeah.
0: So so <laughs> I was just talking to my husband about it. I was like, this guy is in everything, and and Deadwood, all of the and it's always memorable. So good for you. How? Well, thank you. How does it, it feel? Worked. Theater school worked yeah. on you. <laughs> how does it feel like? Uh, I mean, because some people are like, don't call me a character actor. I'm like, okay, but that to me is cool. But to some people, I guess, I don't know. So I guess just thoughts on being called a, a consummate character
2: actor. Well, I mean, just, um, I'm very proud of that. I mean, I always knew, I, and that was my goal. My, my, I mean, I had life goals when I was in school. My goal, when I decided to do this, when I decided to move to big city of Chicago and go to theater school, I mean, I come from a blue collar, yeah, man, rural background. So I was the first in my family to ever move away. So to say that I was going to move to Chicago to become an actor, uh, you know, I may as well have said I was going to move to Mars to grow popcorn because that's how much sense it seemed to make to everyone. Um, but I, when I started there, my goal was always set. I, I want to have a comfortable life doing what I want to do, doing the things that I love. I wanted to be able to raise a family and live comfortably. And how do I do that? Well. TV. I'm, I'm a TV and movie. Th- those are what made me want to be actors or be an actor. Um, you know, Animal House, Halloween, Star Wars. My freshman year of high school, those were the ones where I'm like, oh my god, I how would. How could I? I would want. You know, so um, that was my goal. And, uh, I, I like, where do I fit in? How, how am I going to get my foot in the door? What's my career? What are my okay. str- my strengths? Okay. Earl. And so that was always the goal.
0: Earl, here's my, my thing is that sounds so like, uh, not like a, a kid. How did you get where was your family like super, even though they thought maybe you were going to go sell popcorn on Mars, like, did, did did, did there was something inside of you that was like, I have goals. I'm going to do them. Where does that come from?
2: Uh high school speech and debate coach, Larry England. Um, That's and, awesome. Yeah. We were I, I said when I say we, my wife is from there also. Uh, and my wife's now, she's a vice president at the Disney company. Um, but uh we we had this incredible high school teacher, Larry England, who was from there himself, had graduated from that high school, who taught us. Uh, he said, first of all, in life, you can be or do anything you want to be and do as long as you're willing to pay the price for it. You've got to put in the work. You can't just wish it. You know, you've got to believe it, but you have to work for it. So Larry, and he demanded, if you did not give your best, if you did not focus, you were off the team. And we were state champions three of our four years. And And in my group, my graduating group, uh, the number two band at Jack Daniels, Danny Lamb, he was in my class. Uh, Mike Jackson, a senior VP at United Healthcare in Boston. Kim Weatherford, uh, he's at Oracle. I forget his title, but he's a vice president. Uh, uh, Lanessa, she just changed jobs. But the story is, we're, we, we are all from like farming families, and there's an immense amount of career success in that group. So I think that's where mine was seated. Yeah. And
1: we we had another person um, who came on who went to a small high school who had a very passionate drama teacher. And it turned out Keegan-Michael Key and Kristen Bell and all these people went there. And it was they were largely spurred by this one woman's passion and advocacy. Mm-hmm. So this is reminding me of two things. One is that I don't think people talk enough about discipline, the discipline that it takes to be an actor. And two, I don't think that we tell recent grads and for people who are early career, it's it's, fi- it's fine to find a person whose career you want to emulate mm-hmm. and try, you know, and, and aim for that. I feel like maybe a lot of people when they graduate, their thought is I have to be, you know, I have to cre- like create a new mold or something. And maybe some people can do that, but the majority of working actors are able to do what you're doing, fit into well it's a a given situation
2: i mean everybody deserves to see their live story reflected back to them in our stories and that runs the gamut everybody does and and i get how i leo burmester i found out when i was in college and i started doing plays at murray state leo was on broadway and and numerous things he sent he's passed away uh but he was from bowling green kentucky leo was about a decade older than me it, uh, from a farm it built like me physically, we were quite similar. And when I had my graduate showcase, uh, um, what was it? Well, I, I, I think it was Gretchen Rennell, but she was a casting exec out here. She worked for Disney at the time. And she came up to me after the showcase in Chicago and she goes, "You remind me very much of a friend of mine, Leo Burmister. like you know so knowing knowing that Leo was from a background similar to mine, from a place similar to me, And he did it. He was a working professional actor. Then I said, well, hey, man, I I can... I could do that. Which is,
0: Um, which is like what you said about representation. It really does matter. It matters across the board. It matters in terms of, for anyway, body shape, type of human, like not just, oh, this is a white person. This is a black, this is a woman, but like particulars. And so can you imagine like, yes, it is just, it's so wonderful to know. We we had someone in our class who came from a farming town, Tate, and and he was like a football guy. And that's how he made it and so to see him it's like there is room for everybody and also you're I love that you're on the panel I I won't be there today because of many things but like I um, mostly anyway they didn't tell me where it was Oh, the panel. So there's a panel, and and the, the graduating show the, the graduating students are in L. A. Some of them who are going to move to L. A. And there and DePaul has a panel, and Earl is on that panel at someone's private residence. And the point is, I am so glad you're on that panel. One because where you're from. Two because you're you're you know a similar age to us. Like you're it, it, it's brilliant. So anyway, I'm just very grateful you're on the panel. So good. Yeah.
1: Okay. So um. One of the things that we talk about a lot on here is just the way the culture has really shifted generally, but specifically in um, theater and and theater education over these last 20, 25 years. Do you find yourself in the position that we find ourselves in a lot, which is when you see kind of how things are done now (laughs) and and you compare it maybe to how things were done when you were coming up, when you were early career, I mean, does to me the, the the difference between how we were trained and what we know now about how we should have been trained, and our thoughts and feelings about just the whole milieu of the theater school? Do you do you marvel at all about like how how different things are now in the industry and just with respect to actor training?
2: Um, well, you know, my expert well, uh, uh, twofold. You know, I uh, when I started in theater school, was the first year that we moved into our own facility, which was that old elementary school that oh, DePaul yeah. had bought. Oh, yeah. We went there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so we had just moved into it. that when And when I auditioned, it was still the Goodman School of Drama. It became the theater school DePaul that summer. Um, so that's where I started. Um, and I can't really address professional theater that much now because I'm not not, not really involved with it. I would do it, you know, if the opportunity arose and, uh, you know, there's been a couple of things, but it just wasn't in a place that I could afford, uh, you know, to take those six months off to go do it. Um, so uh, the difference now, I, I think there's there's a much wider berth of, of, you know, it, it's become hackney to say it, but inclusion, um, you know, people are open to telling stories uh, from a different viewpoint. And that wasn't necessarily the case in the past, um, especially in Hollywood and, and TV and film. You know, um, I was thinking about this just the other day. You know, the, the first big wide, wide release movie um, that, that addressed the civil rights movement was Mississippi Burning, which focused on two white FBI agents. You know, it's just the focus of the story. Like they're telling the story of what happened, but they're focusing on the white heroes now, when that movie was released, you know, culturally, ooh, that's brave and that's important. And that's, well, the lens we view that from now is quite different. You know, also something that I was involved with, with there's something about Mary, that wouldn't probably get made today. Right. And, and that was actually written, the, the character of Warren was based on their next door neighbor, Warren-tation. Um, who, and, and, once, and it was written to be Warren. And then it was a little too much for, for Warren to handle. And so he ended up playing, he he plays Freddie in the movie. And then they decided, Warren was a small guy. So they decided to make the visual gag that, you know, I was so much bigger than Ben Stiller. Um, but Warren was based on a real person. And then. Um,
1: right. So, You're yeah. You're right, though. It wouldn't get made. No. I mean, that, I mean, or that character wouldn't be included. Yeah. If it were happening.
2: Well, uh, you know, with that, you know. Here's one of my favorite things that I, one of my favorite compliments I've ever been told. I was in, I was at a show at the Roxy here, a rock show. And this girl walks up to me between bands and she goes, Are you, are you Earl Brown? W. Earl? I said, Yes. So she tells me the story. Her her two brothers had Down syndrome. And she said her mother wanted to see the movie. And she said, I told mom, she said, I had it on VHS. And so I told mom, like, Mom, this, I, I don't know. And and mother said, well, everyone's talking about it. I so she said, I brought my tape over to the house and we put it in, not knowing how anybody in my family would respond to it. And she said, my youngest brother, the scene at the, the school, he walks up to the TV and he points to the TV and he went, he's special. He's just like me. And so, again, that's everybody deserves to have their story told. Um, and, and the thing that with that movie, and we were very conscious of it, and that's why I got cast. They had brought in a bunch of comics and and everybody was goofing on and making fun of the character and the studio wanted a known name they were trying to get a, a a star in that role but the Fairleys were adamant they it has to be honest and the audience has to believe the character so that's the way we approached it and that's why it's successful but again yes that the a lot of the jokes in that film would be across yeah, the board yeah yeah
0: um, I, it so push the envelope. I guess my 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 next question for you is: At the theater school, you're coming from this like speech and debate background, where you you mm-hmm. you all were like kicking butt at that, and then you get into this place in this weird elementary school turned theater school. Tell tell us like what was your experience like at the actual theater school? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Did
2: you what was the what did you think? My first day, first day walking through now i lived in a shitty apartment in a not really nice part of town because that's all i could afford right and i'd never lived in a city so first of all i'm intimidated by the city anyway my first day walked through the door jim ostelhoff was uh was one of our teachers and chet grissom uh, the, the movement studios they didn't yet have the dance floors in them but those rooms were still there first thing i saw coming out of the door of that of that first movement studio is Ostelhoff, well, fucking hit me. Fucking hit me, motherfucker. And Grizzle, fuck you. Fuck you. This is a student and a teacher. And yeah, yeah, you're so fucking hot. Take a punch. Take a swing, man. So. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Ostelhoff had punched, you know, had just had needled Chet to a degree that he exploded at him. And he was taunting him into a fight. You know, That was
1: his favorite thing to do. That oh, yeah, was yeah. Jim Ostelhoff's favorite thing to do. I, what?
2: I How recognize- did that
1: come across to you? Like, what
2: did what did you think of that? Where the fuck am I? <laughs> what, what what have I gotten myself into? But. But I know damn well, push comes sure I'm fighting my way out of it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, there's
0: there's real life experience there too where you can recognize like you're not, it, it, what is this? But also there's probably some part of you that knew you could handle whatever was gonna yeah. come your way. So did you, how did it differ from what your high school mentor taught you? Like, did it take it to another well,
2: level or what? Well, there's there, there's a, a stage missing in there. In high school, uh, Larry Larry was- You know, he was a a speech and debate coach. He wasn't a drama teacher by any stretch. And he didn't really understand, you know, that process and that mindset. Um, We just happened to, he just made sure that we rehearsed and we did, we had to find our way. So Larry didn't really teach me uh, about the the craft or the art of things. He taught me about the, the determination of an attitude toward achieving those things in between those was a teacher at Murray State, Mark Malinoskis. and I took an acting class on a whim. I had been there for a year, and I didn't know where, what, I, I had no direction. Um, and I thought maybe I could work at the the local NBC affiliate. I could be like a, a cameraman or an editor or something, you know. Um, so I I had to take a theatrical experience class. Um, And it was taught by the dean of the school, and it it was a gen ed requirement. There's like 300 people. It's a big, big uh, lecture hall. The college that Murray State had around 10,000 students. So it was a pretty good sized school. Um, So he was, you know, he he was a big theater nut, the dean was. And he did a segment on um, improvisational theater. Well, I was an SNL nut, and Belushi was my hero. So I knew all about Second City, all of the compass, all of that. And he would call students up to, to do improv. And I desperately wanted to be, I wanted to, but I wouldn't stick my hand up. So I didn't. I was scared. So I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I could take an acting class. I, I, so I signed up for scene study the next fall. Now, a little background to that. We had this guy who used to come out from Murray State and help with the drama kids. Um, he has since passed away, so I'll try to speak nicely about him. But he was immensely full of himself. You want to talk about the most pretentious actor, it would have been him. And he had spent three years in New York and had not made, you know, and he ended up back in Podunk. You know, I was the New York actor. So I thought with him, like, I can't do that. I I can't. I'm not, you know, He ah look at him, you know. So I take this acting class thinking I'm going to be in a classroom full of skips. Um, and everybody introduces themselves and, and talked about what plays that they had done. And it gets to me and I said, well, uh, my name's Earl and I'm from here. Uh, I grew up like just out in the County. Um, and I've never done a play. Well, oh, no, wait, take it back. Take it back. In the eighth grade, I did a class play called it's cold in their Hills,' And everybody laughed. They literally, I did that
1: play. I did that play. I did that play. Oh my God.
2: Hit comedy, baby. Uh, I was Paul. I was Paul and it was cold in them, there hills. Oh, my gosh. 19 it 75. Earl, so, we have anyways, to make a television show. We
0: have to make a television show of it's cold in them, their hills with Earl yeah. as the lead. Anyway, go ahead.
2: Well, they laughed at me. Literally, people were snickering. And I, I was so, uh, yeah, and I felt like, oh, what oh, man. And our first assignment Mark gave us was a Shakespeare soliloquy. Pick any soliloquy from the histories, the drama, any oh, of them. And fuck. we're going to do that next week. I picked oh, uh, Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be because I knew it from Gilligan's Island. Yes. Um, Love in it. In high school, in the, only Shakespeare, the only Shakespeare I had read, we were assigned Romeo and Juliet in high school. And I did kind of read that. And then I loved, they took us to the theater because, hell, this, is, this predates videotape. We got to go see Zepparelli's movie. Um and I was so excited because you got to see Naked, boobs
0: in it. naked, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely.
2: Yeah. Boobs, man. So that's the only the only thing I knew of Shakespeare. So I, I knew it from Gilligan's Island. I asked to be or not to be. So I'm like, okay, well I remember that. So I picked it.
0: Wait a minute. Well then you, I
2: said about Oh my god, did you do it in a Gilligan's play. Island tone? Did you do it in a well, Gil- wait. Oh
0: god, I'm so excited <laughs> for the story.
2: So well no, I start to read Hamlet. And you know, I was nineteen years old at this point. And I was kind of like, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? You know, my dad had not been murdered, but, um, you know, all of these questions that he's asking himself about life. And then I realized, like, oh, my God, he's talking about should he kill himself? Should I live or not live? You know, and I had had periods in my youth of very deep depression where bad thoughts crossed my mind. And I'm like, holy shit, I've had this conversation with myself, you know? Um so it comes around time a week later to do our soliloquies and I was toward the end there were there were probably 8 or 10 people in the class um and I oh, now I'm I'm sorry I may have done mine early anyway I did it and then as I'm watching everybody else I'm like What the hell was I intimidated by? I'm better than everybody. Yes. You know, but Um, I
0: just want to say, like something really, really quickly, and we'll go back to the story that is very important for me to hear is that um, that you were able to uh, relate to Hamlet, not being anywhere near. Time, place or way of Hamlet that there is a universal thing there obviously and also that you were able to say two things that is really important to me because what it means is it doesn't matter where the fuck you're from if you can relate to feeling sad or glad or horny or whatever the universal feelings are then the shit matters then the shit matters across the board okay that's it and then the other thing is just how awesome that you were able to say I'm fucking good too like like I yeah. can do
2: this. Anyway, continue. So well, you're like I could do this. Well, I ended up becoming friends with several of the people that were in that class. And then Dr. Melanaskos, who was the head of the theater department, is like, "I want you to audition for some plays." So, I did a fucking dreadful production of of Imaginary Invalid. I did some bad plays. And then uh in uh, October of 84, but that spring, Mark had called me in. He wanted he goes, "I have something I'd like for you to read." I'm considering doing this next fall. It was that championship season, um, and he had seen it on Broadway. And uh, I said, "Yeah." He says, "I want you to play a role in it. What role do you want?" So I, I played coach, a seventy-two or seventy-four-year-old man when I was twenty-two. Um, but that's the one where it transcended craft. It that's the one where word spread on campus, and we were full every night. It was a three hundred fifty-seat house. And I remember on close we – we ran four or five performances, so it was minimal. But I remember the curtain falling and feeling this almost out-of-body, transcendent feeling. I mean, I'd never felt anything like that before. You know, um, feeling the curtain fall. And I remember watching it, and I'm thinking as it's coming – because we got spontaneous standing O's every night. But I'm watching the curtain fall. I'm like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing feeling. I've th- This surpasses any – anything, any church, any drug, any sex, any, anything. This is the greatest feeling. I'm going to do this forever. So that's what really cemented it that, that I yeah. was going to pursue it. What,
0: what do you think if we could say like, what is it? Is it joy? Is it connection? Can you put it a word
2: on it or is it just this yeah. thing? Okay. What yeah. Well, I can, I can put a definition on it. I, I didn't know naively uh, that I would only have that experience three, maybe four times in my life over the intervening forty years. Um, but I, I did the outreach, for the show that broke me open in Chicago. Me and Amy Peets both was a view from the bridge at Steppenwolf's Outreach, and it was it was the transcendent, and and I had that's the one where everything that I learned in theater school. Because there were technique stuff they had us doing. And I thought, what the fuck does this have to do with anything? This is just ridiculous. You know, well, when I did that play, now, when I had done that championship season um, all those years prior, nine years prior, eight years prior, I didn't have the the framework to understand what happened. How or why. Well, when it happened in in, uh, a view from the bridge, I did. Everything coalesced. Everything. And, and I had this moment. Um, I, I hesitate talking about it in public because it cheapens it. But um, let's just say it was a personal transcendent moment. Something unlocked in my unconscious mind. It, and it was a trauma within my family that I bore witness to, that was never spoken of again in my family. We were basically recreating it at the en- that scene at the end. I was not aware of it until final dress rehearsal, and then like the emotional dam burst. Um, and every performance of that play felt like my body, my soul was taken out of my body and washed. Um, and so that, so, but to, to, to define what you said at the end of that run of play of that play, um, George Zarniki played, uh, one of the supporting roles in the play. We were having a party and that hey, was great. Was a great, great play, man. Hey, cheers. And I said, yeah, we, we did something special. And George said, no, Earl, it was more than that. It was more. Because we were 500 spirits in the same space for three hours, and for those three hours, all 500 hearts drew the same beat, beat the same rhythm, and all 500 spirits drew the same breath, and that is spiritual, and that's what we had, and like what what a poet, most poetic, beautiful description of live performance because that's what it is. And you
1: can't get that. Do, I mean, do you ever get that doing film and TV? No.
2: You you have moments. There's so many steps in that process. There've been times on set where 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 some scene will become that and you can feel it, but the camera has to capture it. The editor has right. to capture it. So that step because there's been there's been a few things where scenes were just start, stunning yeah. as we did them. And then I see the end product and like, ah, well, I so didn't get it. I think the thing that sticks huh. out for
0: me, Earl too, is that what you're describing is like what we talk. Cause Gina and I were both therapists for a while. So we talk about healing, right? So there was something healing about that production and that experience together that the audience, and it, it it was like a lot of things came together and it was magic and do you think it can, even in another play, Earl, like, if I cast you, I would love to see you in, like, True West or one of those plays. Do you think that is something that you can, like, cultivate or it just has to happen? Do you know what I mean? Um, it just has to happen.
2: Gina thinks it just has to happen. <laughs> it, it does. But there are processes we can, you know, we can lead the herd that direction. It doesn't mean every cow is going to get through the gate into the right field, Right. but we can lead them in that direction. Interesting. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's both. Um, do you, you direct? Know, and, and it, do
0: you direct, Earl?
2: I, I mean, I've done TV film, or well, no, I've done some short films that sh- I've worked on. I, I mean- write. I,
0: I just think you have a vision, like the way you talk about performances and the way you're talking yeah. about like directing. And also, I just would love to see something you direct. But anyway, go ahead. All right. So we were talking, we were talking about like, we skipped a step and I'm glad we did, went back yeah. to that step because this so, story came well, out of
2: it. Well, there's one other step that led me to Chicago and the theater school. After that had happened, it, and I'm like, I, I, I have to do this. I have to be an actor. I have to pursue that feeling. Uh, the Second City Touring Company came through. Now they had been through one year before and I went to see them. Again, SNL came out when I was in middle school. Well, I was in the sixth grade. And so from the beginning, I was into all of that. And those movies that they made, those are my heroes. And Belushi particularly was my hero. So I went up to an actor, Rick Hall, who ended up being my neighbor here for several years. But I went up afterwards and I said, hey, man, you're from Southern Illinois. Cause made some joke about, it. he goes, yeah, he grew up on a pig farm. I said, how, how did you get, how did you get in this? He goes, you're lucky. We're a brand new company. I just got hired a couple of weeks ago. Our director's on the road with us. Uh, there he is Don Polo. So I go over to Don. This would have been the spring or late winter spring of 1985. So I go up to Don, start talking to him. I don't know what, I made some impression on the guy. And at that point, the second city was three classes. Don taught all three. They didn't have the training center. It wasn't 100 people. It was two dozen people. And Don was the guy. So Don saw something in me. He gave me his number. He said, call me this summer. I want to make room for you. So the summer of 1985, for six weeks, every Saturday, I drove back and forth to Chicago, 840 miles.
0: Oh, my.
2: Yeah. So I would take Don's level one class. After a couple of weeks of level one, because Don knew I was making that big commute, you know, seven hours in the car each way. Don said, hey, man, could you, would you want to stick around? So he put me in levels two and three. So I was doing all three levels by the end of it. So I would be there at like noon or one o'clock, having left my house in Kentucky at like three in the morning, you know, um, and then I would do classes all day. So there were a couple of weekends I stayed up. I was just too wiped out and I got a hotel. But for the most part, I was driving it, you know. So that's what sets me out. I got to get to Chicago because Don thinks I've got it. So my plan was I'm going to go to the second city. I'm going to be there for like four or five years. Then I'm going to go to Saturday Night Live. And then I'm going to get into movies. That's my plan. Yeah. So I got to get to Chicago. Well – do- Dr. Melanoscus was encouraging me to get my advanced degree. He was encouraging me to go into directing because that's better to get a teaching job to have a directing degree. But I said, "But do- I, you know, Dr. M, I don't want to teach." Well, now I know what because he had been an actor. You know, I was like, that's a really hot, hard thing, and you need to have something to fall back on. Well, I didn't want to do that, so I auditioned for a few schools. The Goodman being the top of my list. Well, I got into the top of my list. Didn't get into the B and C choice, but I got into Goodman. Dr. Bella loved me. Oh.
1: Bella was there at my first one,
2: and uh, so I got into theater school. So I started Osterhoff and 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 Chet going at each other and my classes. Well, toward the end of that first quarter, this would have been November of '86. Don DePolo calls me, and he said, "Do you want, you want to join our touring company?" Yes. He said, "You'd have to drop out of your MFA. I don't care. You'd have to have a second job because we. I don't care because I mean, that." It's all happening. I've been here for a few months in the big city, and everything I planned is happening. He said, Well, we're we're hiring a new big guy for the touring company. Be there Saturday. I'm gonna call Joyce. I'll take care of things. But you do need to go through the he literally called it the formality of the audition. At the end of that phone call, he said, You know, I'm not doing this show. Dell is coming Dell close. Yeah. Dell's coming back from the Olympic to do it. He's got this kid over at the Olympic, he's nuts about. But look. I'm going to talk to Joyce. Oh. I'm going to take care of things. It was me and Chris Farley. I know. Farley. I was just saying. Yeah. So, so when we go in, once many years ago, um, a, a budding young, uh, he wanted to be a producer. But I was asked at a panel, uh, Mr. Brown, what does it take to best prepare myself for a career in Hollywood? And it came to me full form then, and I've used it many times since. But I said, well, if you want a career in show business um this is what this is how you can best prepare yourself you're going to need a little help ask about 10 or 12 of your friends people that you trust uh, but people that are sturdy that you can count on and you have them come over and you have them line up one right after the other and then you face them with your back to the wall spread your legs and have each of them kick you in the crotch as hard as they can (laughs) if you get through all 12 of them without being in a ball of tears crying for mercy on the floor you're ready to get started so You know, looking back, that was my first kick in the balls was I've been here for a few months and everything's happening the way I've planned them to be. And then now, if it had been Don's show, it probably would have gotten the gig. But Chris was that transcendent. He had that kind of energy even then. Even I knew as I'm watching, like, oh, this guy's fucking great. You know, I believed in myself, too. But, you know, I took note when he got the gig. I'm like, okay, well, I can see how he got the gig. And then I saw him do every review there until he went to SNL. Um, and then irony, we mentioned earlier, or I did about Fox wanted a star in something about Mary. Chris was at the top of their list, and he actually passed while we were doing the movie because I was in my hotel room in Miami and I turned the news on. Breaking news out of Chicago, comedian, and it was just like this this shock. Um, mm-hmm. So so anyway, that was that's, that's how I ended up in theater school. So I go back to theater school. For me, as an artist, that's the best thing that could have happened to me, because I learned and, and absorbed so much at the school and picked up so many tools that I wasn't even aware of at the time, that made me a, a far better actor than I would have been if I had been thrown into the lions. Then you know, like like Chris was. Chris was eaten up by by that. You know, actually, it, a great it, point. It no, that's
1: actually such a great point. So uh, you hadn't, and you had referenced being on set and realizing things that you thought were weird or bullshit in school you mm-hmm. were using. Um do you any specific examples? And if it happens to be a Bella story, that'd be great too. Like, did you ever well, use like on
0: set, do you use Bella stuff?
2: I do. Yeah. Bellas. I do the uh um well okay my Bella introduction story. My um after intros we go into casting pool and we did uh we did Spring Awakening as our intro, you know, where we all traded off roles and whatnot. So MFA was in the pool on your second quarter. So I was doing um, um, Waltz of the Toreadors, and I was the lead, um, I, the general, General Sampay. Anyway, we're in rehearsals. We've been in for a week or two, and Bella was our faculty advisor. So she comes into our first rehearsal. Well, I had done my homework. I would read my Stanislavski. I knew my super objective. I knew my scenic objective. I knew my beats, and I was ready. And so we're doing the first scene where I make my grand entrance, and Bella, got okay, stomp, 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 oh, Earl, Earl, is it? Uh, yes, Doctor Bella. Earl, oh. oh, what are you doing? I said, Well, Doctor Bella, the super objective of General Sampei is blah blah blah. And General, Sanpei, oh, oh, and she just lets me roll on the <laughs> Goldman River. She's nodding her little gray head, and she says, Oh Vatos, oh, what does, I was an audience member to sit and watch that. would be very exciting. I mean, it's thrilling, thrilling, these choices that you've made. And I have a question for you, Earl. Yes, Dr. Bella. Well, why don't you do that instead of this crap that you're doing? Because this is terrible. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then oh she God. goes, and what do you have on your feet? I said, uh, Chuck Taylor Converse. She goes, would well, that general wear tuck Taylors?" I don't think so. Put some shoes on. Right. So that was my introduction to oh, Bella. You do a great impression. You do a really and good people, impression. People,
1: people who are listening can't see. He had the face, the glasses, and thing with her tongue and her eyes and the glasses. All, oh, all so I need is can of tab.
0: The can yeah, of tab. Exactly. So exactly. the other. Okay, one thing you mentioned about um two things I want to before. So I, uh, I'll just be. You know, I suffer from depression, and I'm wondering if any of that depression stuff has come back for you. And if so, what do you, how do you take care of it and still maintain, obviously you're a working ass actor all the time. So how do you work with that? I think it's really important, especially for youngsters to know about that. Um, so let's start there. Cause I, I, well, I don't want to let it go unnoticed.
2: Well, uh, you know, it, it depends on what flavor of the depression you're talking about. If you're talking about that existential angst where you lose your mojo for life and you can't figure out what any purpose or anything is, that happened to me twice in my life. It happened when I was around 13 years old. And I remember being taken to the doctor and the doctor examines me and he says to my mother, he goes, he's fine, he's just depressed. And I remember thinking in my 12-year-old mind, well, I'm wanting to kill myself. You know, I didn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking. And it was just, you know, So I I went through that, and then when I – again, when I was around 19 or 20, right in there, I went through a period of funk. And it was that experience – those experiences in championship season and then view from the bridge and all of the shit that I learned in acting school about opening your spirit and about being a vessel to that. They made me realize where all that shit was coming from. What I, when I talked about the family trauma that that I experienced through that play and felt like my soul was washed. I went home and I brought it up. My uncle and my, my mother brought it to my uncle first. Long story short, my uncle and my grandfather tried to kill each other. And um And you my wi- and you witnessed it.
0: And you witnessed it yeah.
2: Okay. yeah. I saw them with a tire tool and a two by four hitting each other in the head. I saw my grandfather grab his gun and put a shell in it and turn to shoot his son who had run Mm -hmm. through the barn. I was five and I was shoved Mm -hmm. behind the door and hidden. So my so I couldn't see it. So I'm watching through the door crack and I'm seeing this happen. I saw him running for his gun that was in the truck and uh, it was never mentioned to me again, ever in my presence ever. So adding all of that up, the dysfunction within my family and when I bring it up to mother after it's happened she flew off the handle. Why can't you let a sleeping dog lie? Why do you have to bring this shit up? Just let it go. You have I'm like, "No, nobody let it go." And that's when I realized that's where those depressive funk's came from. That's what they're rooted in. You know, it's it's in my genetics, it's in my DNA, and I'm going through those periods in my life where big transitional periods. So suddenly there's a big shift in in me physically, mentally, spiritually, every which way. So this shit that I was mired into is what just sucked the life out of me. So those are the two kinds of depressions that I, I said, I can I can see the devil coming. I can see him. I can see him when he comes around the corner. And I have, I paint. I play music. I find some expression to to ward him off. So he hasn't yeah. been able to sink his claws into me. Now, there's the depression of of life and and, you know things you don't get the way you know when deadwood was cut off at the knees Man, i was in a funk for a fucking year um because that was my everything i was a writer on the show so it was my life 24 7 and we got cut off at the knees i was wow and um was it because it was too expensive no i mean
1: no it it is a very
2: long story that's that was one of the stories they tell we were expensive because we never ever came in on budget um there were a lot of factors at play. Uh, there was a housekeeping deal with Paramount, that, with David Milch, and to give him up, they got worldwide rights, but they weren't putting any production money in. So while HBO was still making money, they weren't making all of the money.
1: Oh, and of course, yeah. They were agreed. trying to mm-hmm.
2: keep costs down and or force Paramount, I think, to put up some production funds. Right, and they wouldn't. So, and... And we were basically the pawn in a corporate power play. With the CEO. It's such a good show. And
1: such capitalism affects everything, people. It affects. But also, the, yes. But, and- but the,
2: flip, the flip of that is to, to create. We have to have the the facility and the funds to create. Now, sometimes not having enough is what prods you the most inventive things. You know, but also the, like there have been. It's
0: just sad because there's personal lives when things get cut off at the knees. It's not just like, it's people's jobs and dreams and hopes. And I think like a lot of people don't get that. Like I never did until I really worked in it that like, oh, when you stop a show, it's a whole community that's affected. It's not just some, you know, so you were in a funk for a year and then how did you get out of it?
2: Well, we had a, a, first of all, I'm married to an amazing person who knows me in and out. And I was sitting here griping over – there were two actors I used to audition against you know, jobs for, and one of them was making $5 million on a movie. Now, I took nothing away. The dude deserved it. He was immensely talented. He became a movie star. But he's got a $5 million deal, and I'm reading it in the trades. And meanwhile, eh, I'm kind of broke. And I was bitching and griping. And my wife, (laughs) she walks into the dining room. She goes, what are you proudest of? I said, huh? She goes, career-wise, what are you proudest of? And I said, "Um, Deadwood. Because I expect a little backtrack. I naively thought when I entered this industry that if you do special work and it does well, then good things come to you. Now, Scream was the first hit that I was on. Wes Craven was my first mentor in Hollywood. I did three movies with Wes. I became close with him, personally close. Wes gave me Billing. So my, my name in pictures, you know, front billing, I didn't even realize at the time that's a big, pretty big deal. So two years later, Mary happens. Well, I didn't think with Scream, I didn't bring anything special to the table. I was good in it. You know, it was a great movie, and I was good in what I did. But my role, my portrayal didn't really do anything to make it, you know, that movie. Two years later, something about Mary, I felt, well, I did. I was a big part of that movie. So, you know, I'm like, all right, baby, here we go. Gravy right. train. Bags are packed for the gravy train, man. Well, I'm standing at the station and the train blows right by me, it's leaving bi- me there holding oh, my bags. Right, right. Yeah. So that's what I, I love was thinking. Your bitterly. bags are packed yeah. bags are for the, packed the, gravy, for the train? gravy train, Earl. <laughs> yeah. They paid me scale for that movie. They paid me scale to do something about Mary. Uh-huh. Wow. And then oh they didn't then they didn't make a sequel. When they didn't make a sequel, like so. I'm griping here at the, get, at the dinner table, breakfast table. What are you proudest of? I said, Deadwood. And she goes, when was Deadwood? I said, what? She goes, when was Deadwood? I said, well, I did the pilot in 02. We went to series. We, we came out in 04. She goes, yeah. So that was, pilot. you did that four years after something about Mary, right? I said, yeah. She goes, well, if the gravy train had picked you up, you'd be the fat, goofy guy in broad comedies. You wouldn't have done Deadwood. It would the part would have been too not good enough for you, because you would have been you know what that actor is. You would have been on the gravy and, train and, and missed Deadwood. Yeah, yeah. And so that was that was a real moment for me. Of she was right. She was dead on right. You know. Um, so so you're so she's your,
1: she's an amazing support system because she knows you and she knows yeah. what to say to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to. I don't want to let it go. The thing that you were talking about when you when you really sorry you experienced that trauma. And at such a young age, that's so shaping. Um, I just want to observe that everybody who says let it go, what they really mean is push it down. Yeah. So let's stop saying let it go because things only you, nobody ever engineers starts out to let something go and then successfully does it. And it's not a set of keys that you can leave on the floor. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a trauma and it's in your body. And I just wanted well, to say that because well, I just feel like let it go is such a thing that people say.
2: That's where some of the shit that we learned in school movement to music, you know, when we'd be an hour and a half into that, and no, I is this ever going to fucking end? <laughs> you know, but it's, it, all that came together, that energy from that time at five was buried within me. Now, I'm going to set myself up. I, I don't think I'm special. A lot of people, the majority of people have traumas that they've never dealt with. And that energy is buried inside you. The The, the analogy I used of my own was, you know, I used to cut firewood. And that's how I earned my first car was cutting firewood. You cut down a tree, you see the rings. Well, you could see the the years of drought when the thin ring, or you could see where lightning had struck because there would be a blemish in the ring of the tree. Well, then the other rings would grow around it. Well, so that's the way I began to see. That's what traumas are. They're buried. The only way to get that out is to drill down into the tree and take it out. Well, that's the same shit that we go through, you know, spiritually and energetically. So you either work through it, you express it, you get it out of you, or it festers inside of you. So, you know we it's a search for truth under imaginary circumstances
1: oh did you did you make that up
2: i did i've had the thought before but amazing yes. That's
1: amazing i love that uh, you're giving us a lot of qu- pull quotes for yes. <laughs> advertising for this episode by the way so thank you for that okay so you might have gotten derailed from your plan and the gravy train at the beginning mm-hmm. but you, you have had a career that most yeah. people would, well, you know, just kill for. There's a great and, lesson
2: learned from Viola Spolin and from that whole yes and. Well, I learned it as a, you know, a, a, a trick on stage and how to build a play out of nothing. Yes and. Accept the reality that's created and... and and move it forward. It's so
0: true. It's, it's
2: so true. But that's life.
0: And that is life. But here's the thing. Like, I find, what I, I at 46 now, what I find is people are really good at doing a lot of times one or the other. But I think we got to do both. Accept what is happening. Like, the truth mm-hmm. is, I didn't get the job for me or I did or whatever. Accept mm-hmm. that and what's next. So I feel like your career, if we can look at it, is like a huge yes, I'll do this and then Mm -hmm. this and then this happens and then this but like you said yes and then you pivoted when need be but like I think we got to do both like you can't just be like and 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 I'm just going to look for the next thing without saying yeah this is happening and then let's Mm -hmm. let me pivot so I guess I want to ask like what what what's happening now in your life like you're on unha- like what do you- I want to ask since you have a this thriving career do you have like aspirations do you want another Deadwood in your life do you want another what do you want in your life in terms of writing in terms of like for you what's um, next
2: there's nothing like Deadwood um I, I I can't even put into words what that was like you know David Milch I've had two, two of my life's great teachers and and I met them through my career, was Wes Craven and David Milch. And I cannot say enough wonderful things about each person. Okay. Um, Talk about so David, David Milch. No...
0: Talk about why
2: that, that he was so important to you. Um, David, I've met a handful of people in my life that, that might have that level of intellect. I mean, the guy's a genius. He was a genius. A genius. Um, almost invariably, someone whose intellect is that powerful, the other part of their brain suffers. They have a, almost a, a, a interpersonal disconnect, you know, Asperger's or whatever you want to label it. But it's just because that part of their brain is so dominant. David had an emotional side of his brain that was every bit the equal to his intellect. David was able to, to see people, you know, and to see the cracks in your spirit. And Dave being Dave wanted to fix them. Now... When I say that, that gives you ideas of some bead-wearing, sandal-wearing, you know, namaste. No, No. he's a badass. He was a badass, right? David was a heroin addict for years. He was a terrible gambler. Um, He was a convicted felon. Um, So David was a very – I'm looking at a painting of him as I say that. David was a very complicated man, and um, he took me under wing. And we, we, he has Alzheimer's and he is in a home and we are losing him one memory at a time. Um, but I would trade nothing for that period in my life. Creatively, spiritually, everything about it, I wouldn't trade it for anything. So that's what we're looking for. You know, there is no recreating that moment. It's yes. And what's the next thing. So I, it's always about the writing. I always, you know, now, when I started this, I can't say that my ego wasn't such Yeah, I want to see my name up in lights, you know?
0: Yeah, of course. And,
2: And then, then I had experiences like, like championship season, like view from the bridge where I realized like emotionally and spiritually what this can do for me. And that made me think of what those, those stories that I saw, whether it be in film or whether it be in book or, or whether it be a painting, those things that, that have moved me, that, you know, that someone else was the vessel for creating, and they connected with me. So um, that takes precedence. And I said this once to, to, I think it was at the theater school to a group of, of students. And, and David Milch, the, the, this was first coined with Milch when he was mentoring me about writing. And he said, what you have, I do David too, he goes, what you have to understand is that stories have a way of telling themselves. That they, they need to be told. There are truths that need to come to this world. And, whoops, lost my earpiece. He said that uh, you, as a writer, you are a vessel for those truths. So what you have to do is open your spirit and listen and allow that story to flow through you. And, and he said, so remember, every character as you're creating, every choice that's made comes from one or two places does it, uh, how did he phrase it? I forget, but i phrase it in my own way. It, they, it either comes from fear or love, and that's either your ego or your spirit. So the impulse to share that story to me, if it comes from your spirit, and if it truly connects you to that creative spirit and it connects you to other people, nobody can take that away from you, nobody. Now, if you want to make a career in this and to make a living, you know, you're going to get a lot of kicks in the balls. You're going to get a lot constant of ball, kicks. A lot of ball yeah. kicking. A lot of ball kicking. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's your ego. You have to realize that that part is your ego. And if you can let that go, you know, and now I can't, I've got a big ego. I got a fucking poster of myself in here. You know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But maybe you
1: needed a little bit of a bit. I mean, we were just actually talking about this earlier. There is a quality to you know highly successful people. Like you can't really do it without any ego. No, I'm no, sorry. you have. I, you no, know, you do I, have I to have. It. Were,
2: you do. Yeah. Now, now. So the, you. Oh, good. Well, this goes back full circle to the panel. I did a panel years ago with John Riley. John was there. We overlapped a year. John C. Um, and. I was the guy, I was reading the trades. I was keeping track of who was who, who was doing what. And they asked him, um, you know, about, he goes, I got friends, you know, they're, they're just in the trades, always trying to keep track of, well, you can't do that. And he's, I took it at that point that he was looking down his nose at, at people who, but, um, and John, I was there in Chicago when, you know, he got his first big break. And the guy's fucking brilliant. He's incredible. He was incredible in school. But then after time passed, and I realized what John was really saying, is you can't let that be your entire life. You can't let your feeling about yourself hinge upon, can I get a day on this movie? Because he was talking about people who, who were crushed by that. Again, at that point, when I, was, I wasn't struggling because I was still doing this full time. But I was that guy constantly looking for that angle, constantly looking for that foot in the door. Whereas with John, his career was at a place they were coming to him. So I felt like, well, it's easy for you to say, but then as time passed, I realized, nope, I misinterpreted what, what John said. And John yeah. was right. If you put your whole sense of self into this, into getting that job, you know, and then you don't get that job. What well, do you do? Yeah, then you're yeah. fucked.
1: I have to say, because it, 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 nothing is a coincidence, and I, I won't tell Boz's John C. Riley story. We've told it a lot on the podcast, <laughs> um, but it, ha- it 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 happened at his showcase, at Baz's showcase, and you had mentioned being in showcase. And right before you got on, we were talking about this year's class and how they're not they're coming to LA, but they're not performing in front of people. They're not they're not doing the showcase that we all did. Um because the business turn... the business
2: has changed drastically.
1: Oh, say yeah. more about that.
2: It's because of doing what we're doing. We're here right now. You you it's a film thing and now, you know, hell most auditions are, are self tape the meetings first one. Are yeah. Soon. Yeah. And I'm yeah, but, I, but I, there's I don't no mind opportunity
1: self-tape. for these, these I know. there's no opportunity for these people to right to meet. I mean, the, the point of the show, you got something out of the showcase. You said you were at your showcase and you had, you, you were a look, you were ai did, didn't you say that?
2: Well, Gretchen Rennell came up to me, uh, but I didn't get a development deal. Uh, and there's another thing, man. There were, there was one classmate of mine who was an immense, he was, he was undergrad, but we were the same graduating year. He was really fucking good looking and dashing. He was definitely a leading man type. And, Every day that we had audition class with Jane Alderman, you know, on Fridays, I made it a point. If Jane says open floor for anybody, if we have extra time, who wants to do something? I had something new every week. I mean, it wasn't like I was up every week and I wasn't like, <clears> oh, <throat> be the first guy to jump up. But if there was free time and Jane would say, who wants to do something? I would do something and I would do something different than I had done before because I wanted to leave an impression on her. He never once did anything. Sometimes he didn't even fucking show up to class. He got a development deal with ABC that paid him $10,000, you know, as a holding fee. And I'm like, really? Really? I'm busting my fucking ass. Well,
0: and how, so, yeah. so
2: I did not get anything immediately from from that showcase. It's not like I got swept up from the showcase. But I plant, it planted a seed with me. Gettys was the agency to yeah, be at. Yeah, I was there. Back then. Yeah. Yep. So – um You know, a year and a half later, Elizabeth saw me in a play in Chicago, and that's how I ended up with them. And she remembered me from the showcase.
0: Of course she did. Yeah, because she saw you and you were
1: in action, right? So in a way that she would have not remembered you if she saw you on a video. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah. But you know something? It depends. It depends upon the person, and it depends upon the moment. Sometimes you, you can have those. I mean, I've gone through. I've been sitting on the other side of the table. i produced the film, you know and you you can see it when somebody walks into the room right? we hired the lead actor off of videotape we did not meet him because he popped he popped And like, that's the, that's the character. That's the character. So
0: I asked this to Gina earlier and I'm going to ask you and I asked, so I teach it to Paul right now. And uh, I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. only my, those, you're about to meet my students and they're, and, and you better tell them I said hi and to ask you good questions. Now, when you see them today, right? It's later today, right Earl? Okay. It is at three o'clock. Great. All right. But my question for you is, and I asked this to Gina, what if you could do, if I came to you, and said you could do one thing right now and not fail like one thing you want
2: to do earl in terms of this industry Mm -hmm. what would it be i have a horror film that i've written that is a um it's about race um and it's a slasher film that it touches a lot of really hot buttons um and that's at the forefront right now i'm trying to make that happen we got real close like a
1: get out type of thing
2: I, I don't want to go into detail on okay, it great. Uh, Okay,
1: great but it was
2: something that came to me even before get out. when I saw get out, I'm like, oh shit, the, thematically there's a lot going on here. Um, I, you know but but here's the thing. it's about racism in the South. And I said early on, um, you know I, I am not brazen enough to think that I understand that completely. I understand that the teenage white character in it is essentially me at 15 or 16 years old. Um, I have a directing partner who's from New Orleans, who grew up in Southern Mississippi, who's 30 years old, who's black. We're partnered in the thing. So that's at the forefront of what I want to get done.
1: If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!